Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And tonight we have um, two special guests with us coming all the way from California, Pastor Robert Briggs and Pastor Steve Meister of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, California. And they're also the hosts of the Particularly Baptist podcast. So, Pastors, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here. Nice to be here. Um, so, brothers, before we dive into our topic, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself, just a brief background, and we'll start with you, Pastor Briggs? Well, uh, as soon as I speak, you'll know I'm not an American by birth. I'm Scottish by birth. Uh, born in Glasgow, grew up in Edinburgh, went to university in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Queen's University, studied Irish Baptist College way back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, pastored in Northern Ireland, planted the Reformed Baptist Church there. Came to California in 2003 to pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Sacramento. I've been here since then and very thankful to the Lord for his goodness to us as a church and congregation. And having Steve as my co-pastor, one of my co-pastors, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, we do love living in California and serving the Lord here. I'm married to Elaine, 30 years coming next week, and I have four children and one grandson. And you can tell from my accent that I'm from California, or as I like to say, <laughs> left side of the map, right side of the country. Uh, I grew up here and uh, came, became a Christian in high school. I did a tour through the seeker-sensitive era. I was heavily involved in the emerging church, um, and eventually um, the Lord confirmed my desires for ministry. I went to the Master Seminary and pastored in a context of uh dispensational tradition in line with with TMS. And that was here in Sacramento, um, where I was part of a regional fraternal of which uh, was hosted by Emmanuel Baptist Church and my uh, friend and brother here, Robert. And over a course of time, my theological convictions shifted, became confessionally reformed. And uh, um, through a series of really just wonderful providences, um, received a call to Emmanuel Baptist just uh, Eight years ago, almost a little over eight years ago or so now, I've been uh, uh, ministering with Robert, and we're the two vocational pastors on our eldership. And I, too, have four children. And last week, uh, we celebrated 20 years of marriage and grateful for uh, where the Lord has us, both in life and ministry. He's been very kind. Amen. Well, thank you, brothers, for that. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the concept of tradition, right? This has been swirling around RB circles, and I think kind of reform circles in general. Um, but particularly for Reformed Baptists, when we're talking about tradition, why is it important for um, us to not lose sight of our confessionalism, especially, you know, when we're talking about the doctrine of God and and ecclesiology and things like that? Why is confessionalism so important for us? Steve, do I stop at that? Sure. Well, I mean, the most obvious answer is we're confessional um, as a tradition uh, by definition, and um, we arise out of the confessional movement in the you know 16th century or 17th century out of the Reformation. Um, and our forefathers were actually very particular. The fact that we subscribe to the Second London Confession of Faith, which is uh, largely a revision involving the Westminster Confession, of course, and the Savoy Declaration, um, that we intended to 
as much as our convictions according to scripture would allow us to say the same things uh, as Christians before us. In fact, as you, as you all well know, in the, the prefatory letter to our confession, it says we have no itch to clog religion with new words. Um, our desire is to say as much as we can, uh, as Christians have said for uh, centuries, according to scripture. And so that's that's the the stream we uh, arise out of. We um, although there are others of Baptistic conviction that would be more sectarian um, in the Radical Reformation and elsewhere. That's not our heritage or our tradition. Um, that we intend to um, stand where Christians have stood for two thousand years, um, and unashamed of our particular convictions as Baptists and Credo Baptism and ecclesiology and other areas where we must differ uh, with our brothers. Um, but we want to do that carefully, slowly, convictionally, and we want to confess it. And as much as possible, uh, we desire to remain within the the Catholic faith, little C, the Universal Church, uh, down through the ages. Yeah, I think uh, Steve's covered the bases, guys. I mean, we're confessional because our history is confessional. I mean, that's really the reality of it. The church confesses its faith um, and writes down its convictions and has done uh, even long before the Protestant Reformation. It goes all the way back to the the, the early fathers. So, you know, we're not trying to be outside of the uh, church universal historically we're not a you know we, we don't want to be a sect or a cult that is on the outside and i think that when you then trace our history back to the reformation and the church of england and the congregationalists that came out of the church of england and uh, the puritan movement and, and and the you know the baptists who really first wanted to write down their confessional convictions to separate them from some of the sects of the you know 1630s 1640s um, our forefathers understood the importance of Catholicity. They understood the importance of history. They understood the importance of confessing the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Uh, and we stand in that tradition. That is that is who we are as part of the church universal. And we're not ashamed of that. We do have our distinctives, of course, but our first London confession was actually written uh, to identify with uh, the wider Christian community in England at the time of uh, the British Civil War and, and and the Westminster Assembly. So, you know, people may not know our history, they may not have studied our history, but that is our history, um, and that's where we come from, and that's who we are. Yeah, and it seems that, you know, when we're talking about our confession, it, it is a distinguishing document. It distinguishes us. I mean, we you know, when you're talking about the, the first London Confession, it was used as a way to distinguish... Uh, those Baptists from the Anabaptists that they were being accused of. So those methods can be helpful for finding a succinct distinction uh, without having to go through Scripture line by line and mine those uh, those truths out. So those, it's important that we remember those things as we, as Reformed Baptists especially, and as Reformed in general. Um, so in line with talking about confessionalism and tradition, what is a proper understanding of sola scriptura? This has been another uh, controversial topic that's been throwing around. How do we understand that without importing tradition too much or lording it over scripture, but also um, not becoming uh, biblicists? Well, I think our first chapter of our confession states really what we believe, doesn't it? And I think that there is confusion undoubtedly in Reformed Baptist circles right now. I think that there is a sifting going on 
I think men are being forced to, you know, really evaluate what they thought they understood and perhaps what actually they should understand uh, Sola Scriptura to actually be. Um, and I think that there's maybe, from where I'm sitting, uh, guys, maybe a maturing going on in, in many minds that uh, we got a hold of the confession, the 1689 confession, and a kind of revival of it, resurgence of it in the 60s, the 1960s, but we didn't understand uh, the depth of its meaning. And, and, and over the last 50 years, I guess, my own lifetime almost, um, we're beginning to understand more what our forefathers actually meant by what they actually wrote down and where they actually got their understanding from. Um, sola Scriptura does not mean solo Scriptura, that we just have our Bible and uh, we don't think about anything else. Um, the, the, the Scriptures are the final authority uh, with regards to all matters of faith and practice, but there are other uh, factors that have to be taken into consideration. And of course, we're in this whole realm right now, this debate regarding the role of God's two books, really, isn't it? His His book of nature uh, and his book of scripture and how these things actually relate to one another. And I think I can speak maybe a little bit more to it from a, a, a more longevity position, having been to seminary a little bit before Steve was, um, that we, we didn't understand some of these things. And, and I don't think that we really, uh, we certainly weren't exposed to them at the level that we ought to be. Um, and certainly where we're at now in a number of the, uh, you know, resourcing of stuff that's coming up and coming out is being helpful to really clarify for us what our forefathers really understood Solar Scriptura to be. Um, and I think that's where the biblicist issue comes into it, doesn't it? That uh, there are those who really think Solar Scriptura is that we just have to stick to the Bible alone and there's nothing outside of that. But we know that even the word Trinity, for example, is not even a biblical word. So that what does that mean? That there's implications uh, with regards to philosophical backdrop that we've got to we've got to work through, and I certainly can testify. Uh, I got philosophy in my degree, but not to the extent I needed to get it. And a lot of what I've been having to really read and study, I'm having to get myself because it hasn't been taught at a seminary level. So we have to just be honest about that, guys, and and hopefully you know reform uh, and address it. You know, and I'm actually quite excited about the whole uh, project, to be honest. I don't want to fight with guys about it, but I'm really excited about the, the fact that we're actually learning more uh, than we actually uh, have had in the past. I think, too, in, a, in addition uh, with what Rob is saying, we always got to be careful when we have slogans that come become detached from any context and uh, origination. Of course, we're very, we want to be very careful of that with scripture foremost. And we're all familiar with, you know, even the funny quip that goes around. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Um, and that's no less true, although it's, it's maybe less serious, but it's no less true with historical statements. Uh, the, the slogan Sola Scriptura, we have to be very careful that we're not taking these historical monikers in, and using modern dictionaries with them. And that's what's happened. And we know as Americans that we are we have an innate individualistic impulse in our culture um, and even as moderns. Um, we also have, uh, you know, and, and I'll have to give credit to Carl Truman's writings and works, making me more aware of how technological advancements that we uh, how they shift our view of things. And we may not even be conscious of them. The fact that we have personal Bibles that we can carry around. 
um, is a relatively recent development in the scope of church history, just speaking in the breadth of, of two millennia. So um, even that fact shapes how we think of Sola Scriptura and, and me and my Bible. And it becomes all too quickly for us the idea that I individually am the arbiter of what's true or not true. And that's the Reformers. They meant nothing of the sort, uh, and they certainly didn't mean um, they certainly didn't mean to dismiss all tradition because tradition effectively, and we could talk more about this, is the um, uh, the gathering of the ministerial role of the church and of Christians and of pastors and teachers down through the ages. That's basically what we're talking about. And so, really, the question during the Reformation wasn't whether or not we're going to have tradition. Uh, the question was which tradition. Um, and then, so then the, how do we answer that question? Well, the, the final arbiter of which tradition is scripture. It is the final court of appeal and the final norming norm to use that phrase, um, to uh, determine faith and practice, uh, for the church. But it wasn't a question of dismissing or forgetting all that's gone before. Um, and the reformers were pretty plain about one of my favorite statements because it's, it's, uh, so uh, pithy and vivid is uh, in, in the Institutes and in Calvin's uh, preface to the king, where he is going after uh, Roman Catholics on this very point, actually, and the claims that they're just trying to discard uh, all tradition. And, and Calvin effectively says, you know, that our, our papist opponents have a great way of going back into church history and picking up the dung and leaving the gold. And uh, that's such a, uh, you know, a vivid expression. Um, characteristic of the day, uh, where how do we look back down the hall of history and the teaching of the church, and how do we discern who got it right and who got it wrong? Well, of course, the answer to that is God's word. Um, but by that simple fact, we're recognizing that we are doing that. We are receiving teaching. We are acknowledging that God has been uh, working. Uh, the Holy Spirit did not, dis- you know, was not sent uh, by the Father and the Son, whose special new covenant ministry in the church, you know, last Tuesday. Um, he has been working in the church. And so we receive then um, what has come down to us, acknowledging it's going to be mixed with error, that men are frail, fallible, fallen, uh, remaining sin, it, 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 it have other motives. We have to discern. But how we do that it then is with Scripture. So Sola Scriptura really needs to be reframed as the basis of how we discern tradition, not whether or not we have tradition or all. That's That's really putting a modern bent an emphasis on, on that slogan. And that's really what distinguishes us from Rome, is that we're using tradition underneath Scripture and forming it with right. Scripture. They're using it in spite of Scripture. Right. And that's the, I think that's the nuance that's missed in this discussion. Yeah, exactly. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, what would you say the role of tradition and the confession should be in how we interpret Scripture? Or should there be any role at all? Obviously, I, I gather what you'll say, but. Well, so, go ahead, Steve. No, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, that one of the big debates, of course, is that in the minute you would say it should be a lens to help us understand our Bible, there are people who have meltdowns because they automatically think we've become Roman Catholics, but they really don't understand what is actually being said there. Um, and it's also assuming that the people who wrote the confession didn't do any exegetical work themselves and had no uh, foundations upon which they were building, which is really arrogant on our part, because actually 
I think if the truth be told, many of these men were better uh, linguists than we are and uh, had access to the, the original text in a better way than we do. But notwithstanding all of that reality, I do think that we should be using our confession uh, to, if you like, you know, when you play, when you play, uh, you know, ten pin bowling, you put up the the guardrails so the ball doesn't go flying off, you know, over the into the other way. I think this, I think our confession functions like that. That we should recognise we are in something far bigger than ourselves. That's the church, and men better than us and greater than us have 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 worked through some of these issues or these issues, and it's come down to us now. Um, and as we take up our Bible. Uh, these things are meant to guide us and help us so that we don't end up outside of orthodoxy and in heterodoxy. And so I think that uh, one of the things I can honestly speak to as a Reformed Baptist is I think a lot of our Reformed Baptist churches have not done well at teaching their people, uh, one, the, the role of the confession in the life of the church and in their Christian life, and two, even the actual content of the confession itself. And I think in some places, that's why we're seeing departure uh, from confessional truth, confessional statements, confessional norm, because actually when we actually discover what it really teaches, we actually don't really believe it. Um, and yeah. uh, we actually don't want it. And we actually want our, uh, to use Carol Truman's term, we want the rise of the modern self in terms of me, my Bible, and Jesus, and that's it. So I would say our confession is the guardrails. It helps us to stay within the realm of orthodoxy. It's a lens upon which we must, you know, again, we always test it, but the reality is it really guides us rather than us actually sitting over it. Um, you know, I think Steve put it well one time we were having a conversation, you know, that uh, he said, you know, uh, your interpretation's fine, but it doesn't have the same level of authority as, the interpretation of the confession that's been hammered out over actually, you know, thousands of years, if you really go back all the way to the fathers and the early creeds that are really embodied in our own confessional statement. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, when I'm teaching this concept to just our church members or, or those exploring membership in our church, I'll often ask them just to open their Bibles to the table of contents. And I said, let's look at this table of contents and let's just recognize that, there are, you know, Jew, religious Jews that don't have the New Testament books. There are Roman Catholics that put books in the apocryphal books in between the Old and New Testament. And Mormons add books after the New Testament. Um, we don't have any of those. Also, you'll notice that you can read this. It's in English. When the Bible was originally written, English didn't exist as a language. And yet it's been translated to English. And so we're, you're a part of receiving tradition. And you don't even realize it and don't even acknowledge it. Now, of course, the, the theological background behind all of those things, a Bible in the language we can read is our in our confession, chapter one, paragraph eight. Um, the, the books which we accept as self-authenticating scripture is in our confession, chapter one. We're confessing our tradition that's largely assumed um, by many Christians. And, and so um, what we're just really making plain is what we all take for granted. None of us you know, learn in a vacuum and have knowledge beam to us. Uh, we have things handed down in tradition to us to as basic as our alphabet. And then according to, you know, the, the scriptures that we've gotten. And the now here's what's what's key and I think is missing and where where confessionalism is uh, should be a source of safety 
for Christians and exalting the authority of scripture is because once we confess our tradition, we confess, you know, the canon, we confess all these things, we're now putting it open to examination. It can be chastened. It can be examined. It can be assessed. If we just assume it, well, then it's unassessed. How do we know that that we've thought this through, that it is according to scripture? And so I think we need to just have a mindset shift when we talk about our tradition and confessing it and putting it out there, um, we're actually putting our first principles on paper to be examined and authenticated according to scripture. And of course, as, as confessing particular Baptists, we, we believe it is, we believe that's what scripture teaches and we're, we're articulating it. Um, but we're, we're not certainly uh, wanting to divorce ourselves from tradition. It's impossible to do so. Uh, no one does that. We all have a tradition. And as we come into scripture and we get to the task, you know, for us, we're, we're, we're preachers week in and week out. We have to prepare sermons. Um, we're charged in the Bible to teach according to the standard of teaching, Paul says in First Timothy, uh, according to uh, according to what is taught elders are supposed to instruct in Titus 1. And, and we could look at all these statements. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that he taught the whole counsel of God. What comes to our minds? When we, when we are thinking of the whole counsel of God or the standard of teaching, what is it? Every single one of us has something that comes to our mind. Now, for us, we would say, well, that's been confessed. That's in our confession. I, I believe that's, a, that's a, as Spurgeon said, an excellent epitome of what Scripture teaches. And so these are representing a large substance of my presuppositions as I come to Scripture. They are the guardrails. They are what I think about. I don't begin every study of any particular passage by starting in Genesis 1. No one does that. Um, so I'm bringing my assumptions and I'm stating what they are and, plain, and, and putting them out. And so they do function as an as a, uh, interpretive starting point, as a guardrail. Of, of keeping me within the options of what um, passages might mean according to the analogy of scripture, because I have that set out in a confession. And so um, in many ways, all we're doing in confessionalism is the same thing that any Christian, any uh, pastor or preacher is doing. We just put it on paper. And we also have the advantage of saying we agree with centuries of Christians, as, as Rob just said, in confessing um, the large portion of our confession. And so um, that there should be a sense of, of safety, of honesty, even frankly, humility. Now, I'm not saying every confessional, you know, Christian is inherently humble by having confession, um, but it is an act itself is an act of humility because I'm distinguishing um, my understanding of scripture from scripture itself, that it can be open to examination and use and, and criticism and assessment and, and what have you. So, so really the, um, the scare tactics for lack of a better word, or the fear around confessionalism that somehow we're diminishing the authority of scripture, I just think is backwards. It's upside down. I think we're actually highlighting and we're protecting the authority of scripture um, with confessionalism rightly understood and tradition. Yeah, it's a it's a very important point you bring up there because everybody has a a, a system of belief, uh, and that's what a, a confession ultimately is. It just happens to be in a written form, and when it's written, then you can examine it. Whereas if it's internal, it's in your head. Nobody nobody can examine it except in the except when it comes out every now and then. There's no systematic way to examine it, um, right. and that's one of the benefits of confessionalism. Um, We've sort of already started to talk about this, uh, but 
there is has been a, a push away from the proper use of tradition in Reformed Baptist circles with the uh, solo uh, towards the solo scriptura approach. Why do you think that decline has taken place? <laughs> well, I, I think that there's a whole variety of reasons, guys. I think you know we live in a culture where uh, we are products of our culture. I mean, we're all 21st century, late 20th century guys. Um, we're also products of our education. Um, you know, none of us get through our education, you know, without picking up the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I think that uh, the way I see it is earlier what I alluded to. I think that having been in the Reformed Baptist movement now for 30 years, if you want to use the term movement, I'm not a big fan of that, but we'll just use it for the sake of discussion. Um, you know, and I've known, you, you name a, a fairly prominent Reformed Baptist in the last 40 years, there's a good chance I've known them and I've met them. But I think that we haven't understood uh, confessionalism. And I don't think that we've understood uh, the the substance of our confessional statements um and i think that we're some of our some of our beliefs then are being challenged um uh, and i think that i think there are some of us and i would include myself in this who are actually thankful for that and are embracing it i think there are others who are resisting it and uh why they're resisting it i can't get inside their heads and i'm not want to judge their motives um i have my concerns um but i do think that a big part of it does maybe come out of what uh, Carl Truman really brings out in his book on the rise of the modern self, that really it comes down to we are in this cultural moment in a culture where it's me, my, and mine, and all about me, and I am the authority, and don't you dare challenge my authority, and I have a self-right to self, you know. And I think we've we've kind of, that's bled into us at a certain level, and I think that, we are the product to some extent of that philosophical reality and we don't necessarily realize it. Um, I think that would be a major thing that I think as time goes on, uh, that will become more manifest. And I think that we will see that uh, those who are realizing the importance of learning and changing uh, will, will do well. Uh, those who don't, I think, will not do well. And uh, we'll we'll see that as, as as maybe you know I always say to Steve he's twelve years younger than I am you maybe live to see it I don't know if I will but there there will be changes um, I, I'm hopeful uh, Steve will tell you I'm always optimistic sometimes foolishly but uh, you know I, I am hopeful that the Lord is doing a work of revival and and and, and reformation and, and there's some really exciting things coming you younger guys uh, you know encourage me. Um, but I do think there's a bit of a, a blind spot to this that is yet to be uh, really addressed. And, 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 and there may be some bloodshed before it's all over. I don't mean literally, but uh, metaphorically, there's a little bit of blood being spilt here uh, in, the, in the conflict. And that's a pity because I really would like to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I want to love my brothers, but I, I fear the, the confessional drift in certain places is, is, is concerning. Uh, um, but the but the but the confessional embrace in other directions is very encouraging. So, you know, it is what it is, guys. You know, and here in Northern California, we're committed to confessionalism without apology. Absolutely, 
I mean, there's a lot of factors. Um, I think Rob's rightly identified the cultural one, the um, expressive individualism, the impulse that that's within us. I, I think another practical factor to what were what is behind the doctrine of God debates or confessional debates is just the fact that a lot of pastors and uh, teachers have been mostly reading um, post enlightenment commentators for a few decades now. Um, and we tend to underestimate the impact that the 18th and 19th century philosophies had uh, on our biblical interpretation. And it's been uncritically received. I uh, just uh, last week, I preached a sermon on divine immutability from Malachi three. And as I was reading modern commentators, uh, there was more than a couple who would make assertions without argument that this in no way refers to the metaphysical immutability of God. It is only his covenant faithfulness in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change, period. And they would just say that and then move on without defense, without assertion. It's taken for granted the, the enlightenment assumptions and the way that's crept into our hermeneutical um, framework that what we believe that the culturally conditioned readers of Malachi's day and what Malachi must have intended um, can only be the, the meaning of this text. And we know there's no way that Malachi could have meant the metaphysical being of God because that's a, you know, a post-Hellenized you know, issue. And, and then we dip into Harnack and other guys at that point. And all of this has fed our hermeneutical framework. And, and we've been reading commentators who have been pouring it into our, our minds for maybe decades, many of us. And so it's just become almost the unconscious assumption of of our um work in scripture and this includes confessional guys and it's not not a malicious thing it's just been been unconscious to it um i remember in one of the things that started me on my road to changing conviction eventually to become confessionally reformed was realizing in seminary while i was taking historical theology and hermeneutics at the same time that I was in historical theology and loving it, reading um, patristics, reading some medieval guys, reading the reformers, enjoying it, and then going to my hermeneutics class to learn that all these guys read the Bible wrong. So they got the right conclusions, but they didn't have the right methods. And that tension's been um, with even the confessional circles to this day. And it's kind of breaking open at, at least one point is the material issue is the doctrine of God. But there's other places where it breaks open as well, where we don't realize we've got a post-enlightenment hermeneutic. Um, we have assumptions about scripture that are not necessarily warranted by scripture itself. We have hermeneutical principles or interpretive principles that aren't consistent with scripture. Um, and we need to recover not just the doctrines of the confession, but the hermeneutical disposition by which those doctrines have the, the church arrived at them. Otherwise, why would we hold uh, the, the, the conclusions or do we have some kind of weird and consistent position where, you know, they got the right answers, but they got the wrong way of getting there. That, that that's, doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I think that's really a key factor in this. And I mean that in a, not a pejorative way. I mean that in a way of this explains why a lot of confessional pastors are confused because they've been primarily reading commentators who are uh, modern guys in deep with enlightenment principles and um, have not realized often where it conflicts with the confession. And now that we have greater resources and greater historical work telling us, well, no, this is what the framers of the confession meant by the words that are in our confession. Um, now we're realizing, oh, these things don't join up. And so we're having, you know, it kind of turns into sometimes 
conflict over, well, is this scripture or tradition? It's like, no, no, no. The, the issue is our hermeneutics, our principles, we didn't drink from the same well that the framers of our confession drank from, uh, nor those preceding them. And we need to really rethink that. I think we, in some of the current debates, if that came the locus of conversation, our hermeneutics and not our confession. Yeah, it's um, it's actually a little bit ironic, at least as far as I see it, that you have um, uh, what I guess I'll label as the grammatical historical method being put out there and um, how we need to understand things, how, say, um, Jews in Malachi's time would have understood it. Um, and then you really start undermining the sufficiency of Scripture, because for 2000 years of church history, um, how are they how are the. Christians in the church supposed to know exactly what would have been going on in a Jew's head at that time, the cultural background to all that. So it's interesting that that particular way of interpretation or that particular tradition um, actually does have a, a subtle undermining of the sufficiency of scripture there. Um, moving on, we, we began talking about this a little bit here, um, but why do you think there's been a, a decline in the doctrine of God uh, among the reformed Baptists and, um, has the concept of separate referenda been problem, problematic in this decline? Well, I think yeah. the doctrine of God issue ties in a little bit as well, really well, ties in substantially with what Steve just mentioned regarding the, you know, theological constructs of the late 19th, you know, the mid 19th, late 19th century through the 20th century. I mean, if you've done any kind of reading at all with some of the guys that are recovering the, what we would regard as the, the, the orthodox doctrine, um, you'll recognize that uh, there was a, 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 a theological drift away from an orthodoxy regarding Trinity, regarding uh, Godhead, regarding you know the impact that that has on the doctrine of Christ as well. Um, and I think that, uh, to Steve's earlier point, I think that those of us who were educated in, in schools that, even, even maybe even promoted some of that stuff, you know, even more strongly than we would even, you know, have realized at the time we were getting taught these things uh, without realizing that's what we were getting taught. Um, and I think that uh, the recovery of the doctrine of God, if you want to use that kind of term really has begun in the, you know, nineties into the two thousands. Um, but again, it's the same problem that uh, you have to be willing to admit what you got taught at seminary was wrong. Um, you've got to be willing to admit that what you thought was accurate was not accurate. And, uh, you know, if you've been in the ministry like I have for 30 years and you're going to have to admit that, you know, hey, you know, I've uh, not understood this very well. Um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be willing to be humble about that. You know, I think if you dig your heels in and you just came, well, I've never changed my theology since 1990. I mean, that, that in itself was a scary proposition to me in itself because I, I thought that we were meant to be growing in the knowledge of God, but I guess not everybody does grow in the knowledge of God. They just instantaneously get the knowledge of God and it never changes. But um, that's an issue. I, I think that we have to be honest about to Steve's point. If you've been reading commentaries all these years with these presuppositions and you didn't know that, if you think that you haven't been influenced by that, you must be not thinking very deeply. Um you can't keep drinking at the same fountains without it getting into your bloodstream. So I think that's a factor for us, guys, that we've just got to face. I think that what 
the simple referenda thing, you know, we notoriously uh, got ourselves into hot water about that recently. But uh, reality is that we stand by it. I mean, Bob Godfrey really dealt with it well. The reality is that simple referenda doesn't mean we keep changing our confession. Uh, it means we go back to what our confessional standards are because our heart and our mind drifts. And I think that's been categorically obvious in the 20th, you know, late 19th, early, in the, mid, the whole of the 20th century. So let's get back, guys, to this truth. That's really the issue. And let's be honest about where we've drifted or where we haven't understood it. It's okay. It's part of your sanctification. Uh, let's grow in our knowledge of God and get back to the, the, the true doctrines of the faith. Uh, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that's been hammered out down through the centuries. So, um, you know, we have to get back to that. That's what Semper Reformanda means, get back to the, the, the truth and uh, deal with your th faulty thinking, deal with your heart drift, repent, get back. Um, and that's what we've got to be doing, guys. And I think that's the call that I would put out. That's what I'm working through in my own life. You know, I'm just finishing my THM at PRTS. It's been a wonderful experience. Steve and I were talking about this yesterday, how in the mystery of God's providence, I thought it would be for something very different than it's turned out to be uh, four years ago when I started this. Um, but I'm glad because I've learned so much um, regarding how far we've drifted and how far we really need to get back to these things. And I'm convinced that our confessional convictions can stand the test of the progressive culture of our generation. I think we cannot stand against it if we actually have imbibed their principles. We'll get swept away. We'll get swept away. And that's what's coming, I think, if we don't get back to our confessional understanding and our historical understanding. That's it. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And the way I, I, I don't think many Christians understand that the way they, they use Semper Reformanda is actually setting them adrift on the same subjective sea that our culture is in, that we're trying to uh, stand against, stand on the rock of Scripture and of our God um, and call others out from. Um, you know, it, you know, the short answer to that, and you can look this up on good resources. Table Talk devoted a, an issue to it in 2014, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I remember it was in November. It was either 2014 or 2017, a, a November issue uh, on Semper Reformanda. And some good articles there by Scott Clark and Carl Truman. Um, it's basically a 20th century invention. There are some historic precursors to it. It was hardly the sixth sola of the Reformation. It was not a known uh, slogan. Um, and the full, the full slogan is the church reformed and always reforming. And it's far more about the Christian church growing consistently with her stated doctrines. Um, it's not, it was not the intention of the reformers or afterwards to suggest that we can never arrive at truth. That's actually a very subjective uh, idea. And, and again, many Christians, I don't think they realize how they're really imbibing a subjective perspective when they use Semper Reformanda that way. We believe we can know true doctrine. And then it could be true and stay true and true for the next generation. And we can tell the next generation, take this. You don't need to revise it. Um, and so we believe that our confession can be right um, and can be true according to Scripture. Um, but we do recognize that our need to grow in it and to and to live and to pray and to worship and to minister consistent with it. That's itself is a process. 
Um, and I think the irony in the recovery of, if you want to call it classical theism or confessional theism, is that it is a function of semper reformanda. <laughs> the church is being reformed and it is growing according to our confession and the truth of scripture. And we should praise God for that. It's a wonderful thing. And so uh, we may want to, you know, distinguish these truths and um, these, again, these slogans, um, banding them about without any sort of anchor of, of reference. And again, it's important to say with this what we are not saying, that the confession is uh, um, beyond revision, right. that no one can ever revise it, that no particular ecclesiastical communion, whether that be a local church or an association, can never make exceptions to it or, or, or anything. We're not saying anything like that. Um, that's totally possible, consistent with Scripture. Um, the fact that we have more than one confession in the history of the church recognizes our acknowledgement of that. Um, so we're not uh, suggesting that um, that we place our confession in this inviolable final authority as, as we would scripture, which can broach no revision or, or addition, certainly. Um, but uh, we don't want to sort of, it's a, it's a slippery thing. And, and Muller mentions in his dictionary of Greek and Latin terms that that basically Semper Reformanda seems to have been uh, invented or, or employed rather in the 20th century for the sake of justifying doctrinal change. Um, and, and I think what I would rather encourage uh, certainly my fellow brothers in ministry and other Christians, let's do our homework first before we um, just saying we're going to rip this and that statement out of confession, especially when we're talking about the early chapters on the doctrine of God. Um, let's do our homework and think carefully about uh, what the confession by what it says. Often, I don't think we've done that. In fact, I think we've just begun to do that. And so let's do our homework first and, and think about these statements. Uh, to borrow a phrase from Ch uh, G.K. Chesterton, you know, before you take offense down, you might want to ask first why it was put up. And I think we need to be in that process of let's figure out why these, this theological fence was put up in our confession understand it clearly, check it with scripture. Absolutely. And, and then we can have the discussion about whether a confessional revision is necessary or what have you. But I honestly don't see uh, signs that we've done our homework well enough to begin having that discussion now. Yeah, we would do well to follow, you know, the apostle James words to be quick to listen and slow to speak, right? Mm -hmm. to, to be willing to learn and to slow down instead of uh, rushing to our own conclusions. And, and that kind of leads us into what we're uh, going to be talking about in the next question. Um, you know, there's these these ideas that we're using these philosophical terms or importing Roman Catholic terms into our discussion about who God is. Um, and even as it relates to confessionalism, um, like Thomism or Aristotelianism, if we're talking about Greek philosophy. Um, but how would you um, how would you approach someone who might be struggling with utilizing that terminology and that tradition, so to speak, when we're talking about the doctrine of God? How do you work through that? Well, I think that we have to be very careful in a number of areas here. I think, first of all, I haven't met too many Protestants who are experts on Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, I, I pastored in Northern Ireland for 14 and a half years. Northern Ireland is the most... Uh, polarized community between Protestants and Catholics you'll find anywhere on the planet. So the minute you mention Thomas Aquinas in a Protestant's context, the best they're going to know is he's just a Roman Catholic and therefore you have nothing to do with him. Um, but that's a, basically a thoughtless 
perspective um, and an ignorant perspective. I, I was introduced to Thomas Aquinas through my class at uh, Puritan where we were studying the, 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 the Heidelberg uh, Catechism and we actually had to actually read through Thomas Aquinas's Catechism. And I, I freely admit that my first initial response was, oh, Thomas Aquinas. Oh, he's a Romanist. Uh, but when I started to read it, I realized how ignorant I was, actually, in regards to a number of uh, elements of Aquinas. Now, you know, I think I think that we have to recognize that, you know, all things are ours, guys, right? All things are ours. The Lord has given us all things for our benefit. Um, so you need to you need to be willing to, to, to take a humble heart of listening. You know, Richard Baxter, who I'm sure we all would have some problems with, did say this on one occasion, if we would be the best of all men, we must be willing to listen to all men. We can learn from all men. Um, you can learn from the beggar in the street if you've got enough humility in your heart. So I think Aquinas undoubtedly is one of the great minds of the of, the, of Christian history and, and, and the Christian church. And uh, to just dismiss him because he was a Roman Catholic uh, maybe shows more your ignorance than anything else, shows more my ignorance than anything else. Um and I would simply plead for this, that, you know, where a man is useful, then he's useful. Where a man is not useful, he's not useful. I mean, I I, I uh, don't follow John Calvin on baptism for a reason, right? But I still love reading John Calvin, right? Um, I love Martin Luther on justification by faith. But the Lord's Supper, he might you not know, even think I'm a Christian. Uh, if you actually read Martin Luther. So, you know, I think, again, we're not... Reformed Baptists have not done well with historical theology until really more recent times. And I think that we're beginning to face that. It's painful because it's humbling. And humbling is never, you know, easy. Um, but I would say this, that, you know, be willing to learn what you said earlier, Brother uh, Daniel, you know, be slow to speak, uh, be willing to read, and when it comes to Aquinas, it's going to take a bit of effort. He's not easy read in some places. Actually, surprisingly easy in other places, quite honestly. But uh, I think that there's there's plenty of resources out there to at least help you to get to grips with some of the the, the main issues, you know, that we're really talking about here regarding his his natural theology, etc. Um, and if someone like me, who's a generalist and not a not an expert, can spend a few years getting to grips with some of these things then you know i'm an average joe uh, then i think your average pastor can make the effort at least to be able to understand some of the key contours of the discussion so that he doesn't have to fear uh thomas aquinas or or or, or misstate it or misrepresent it in ways that really will prove to be ignorant so i would just encourage people you know to be willing to learn willing to read do your own research uh, and work through it with uh, with an open heartedness of humility, teachableness, which actually you should have if you're a Christian anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple, two good necessary qualifications we want to add to the, these kind of questions. Uh, one, just a historical, you know, point that Roman Catholicism, as we understand it, is really a post-Reformation creation. And so these categories were still far more in flux during the Reformation and certainly before it. I'm not suggesting that Thomas was a Protestant. He certainly wasn't a particular Baptist. Um, but, but when we start using those categories, we have to recognize it's a bit anachronistic to put, you know, post-Reformation, you know, Roman Catholicism 
that label even on on Thomas on on Aquinas. Um, he is a theological antecedent to our confessional, you know, doctrine of God, and the it's it's you know una, nearly unanimous in you know uh, the Puritans and the post reformers uh, in the midst of the Ref- Reformation. They're citing Aquinas. They're building on at least the tradition of which he was a significant contributor and a player. I don't think he's the primary issue. Um, I don't think he needs to be the issue. I honestly don't care if anybody's read Aquinas. I don't go around trying to get people to read him. Um, but he's an undeniable contributor to the theological tradition that we confess as it relates to the doctrine of God. And and that's the important point that gets missed um, in really kind of a genetic fallacy type of arguments um, is that our controversy with Rome isn't over the doctrine of God. Um, John Owen said in his catechism, this doctrine alone was uncorrupted by the papacy, um, that we receive our understanding of the doctrine of God, of the person of Christ, some of these foundational matters. Um, we receive them with our, you know, neighbor, Roman Catholic neighbors, at least those that are consistent with the historic teaching. This wasn't part of the controversy. In fact, I would say that really our controversy with Rome is that their doctrine of just of soteriology is inconsistent with their doctrine of God and that the Reformation project was not over reforming the, uh, the Catholic doctrine of God, but over getting our doctrine of salvation in line with it. Um, and that is what, you know, the theological controversy was over. And so just some of these, you know, simple distinctions really that should remove uh, the fears that, somehow holding to what Christians have held to and understood um, for centuries is going to make us Roman Catholic. I, I honestly don't understand the accusations uh, of that towards those of us who confess the second London. I mean, my confession calls the Pope that Antichrist. I, I'm not really in great danger of swimming the Tiber anytime soon, um, let alone all the other statements in our confession where we're explicitly denying uh, the doctrines and practices of the papacy. Um, we've seen our ministry wonderfully in our church. I've seen personally, uh, thankfully, in my ministry, the uh, God leading um, Roman Catholics to Christ through my ministry. Um, and so it, when I run into a Roman Catholic person today, I assume they, they're, they're an object of evangelism. Um, but when we get back to these central doctrines, um, we don't have controversy over these things. And we could even read Catholic writers like Giles Emery and, and, and Thomas White and, and benefit. Um, now we want to have discernment. And again, that's, <laughs> that's the whole point of the confession, right? <laughs> Is that we have discernment and it helps us. It gives us guardrails even to engage um, people outside of our tradition. And I think that reading outside of our tradition, especially those of us in ministry that have uh, theological education or, or maybe uh, more acumen in these areas, uh, we don't need to be afraid about reading outside of a, our tradition. It should only solidify us in the things we agree with and really should strengthen us um, in uh, the things we don't. I mean, nothing makes me more Protestant than reading a Roman Catholic explanation of justification. Um, and so I, I just I don't understand I just be honest, I don't understand the paranoia, the fear that by somehow acknowledging uh, that our doctrine of God and and other doctrines in our confession had predecessors in the medieval church that got other important issues wrong is somehow going to make us all Roman Catholic. Uh, I I don't see that. I don't understand that. I also I also wonder when we discover how much Bernard of Clairvaux influenced Calvin, what that's going to cause in the church. Uh, Yeah. 
you know, there's a, there's just a, a lack of understanding of the history of the church and who has influenced who. But there's a there's a whole corpus of uh, material that's now you know, beginning to become uh, uncovered regarding, you know, communion with God and Bernard of Clairvaux and Calvin and, and the reformers. There's a there's a continuity there that you know are we going to suddenly say Calvin was really a secret papist? I mean, I think we have to check our own hearts and I think we have to check our own prejudices. And having pastored in a context where that was a prevalent reality in the culture, i.e. Northern Ireland, and I've had to really check my own heart in regards to that. Uh, Steve knows as a Scottish Protestant, with all of my proclivities, having gone to Knox Academy and Haddington, uh, I've had to really you know, recognise that maybe, maybe some of the prejudicial stuff that I've grown up with is actually remaining corruption that needs to be mortified and is not actually of the spirit of God. Uh, is that a possibility? I, I have to face that about myself. And so I think that we have to, uh, you know, walk in humility, brothers, uh, be open to be taught and recognize that uh, our little slither of life and history and experience is just that. And there's a whole lot more to learn. Yeah, and, and even going back to where, just you know, piggybacking on that really quick, going back to where we started our conversation in the importance of confessionalism as we are a branch on the big tree of Christianity and the universal church, uh, we don't want to be cut off. And if you follow the genetic fallacy consistently, you will end up on a very small island with a very small selected canonical um, group of teachers. And the inbreeding theologically that will result from that We'll be really weird kids, and we don't want to do that. Um, we want to um, stay firmly, most importantly, Christian. We're not ashamed to be particular Baptists and to be Calvinists and to be Reformed and all of our distinctives, unashamed. But we're Christians first, and uh, we want to stand there, and we want to benefit uh, wherever there's benefit to be had. And again, the 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 privilege and the, the freedom we have of being confessional means we have a guardrail, we have a, 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 a lens, we have um, a discernment grid by which to sort through all the input we're receiving and what we're reading from. And so um, really less fear about this, I think, would be necessary and, and, and more desire to be, as, as Rob's well put it, just humble and teachable to even those outside our tradition. Amen. Yeah, it, and it seems that when, you know, the... You, it's asserted that we're swimming the Tiber or that we're just elevating Thomas Aquinas to a place that should be. It's really a red herring. I think it's a distraction from the real issue. It's distracting, like you said, from um, really, I think the, the ignorance that is in reformed Baptist circles, especially that we're just not willing to admit. Um, And we just, you know, we need to be in constant prayer for ourselves and for other brothers who may be struggling with these things that they'll, see these things and be willing to listen. Amen. All right. Well, to uh, close, (coughs) excuse me, to close out our questions for tonight, um, is there anything we can pray for you brothers or for your church? Well, you could pray for our ongoing uh, ministry of the word and amongst our people. We're very thankful for our people. Um, They're grown in the Lord and just pray for the word to have effect in the lives of our people to, see them transformed and conformed into the likeness of Christ. Um, Pray for us as we expand our leadership with more elders. 
We also have, I don't know how many it is, Steve, 13 or 14 new members coming in with about five, six baptisms coming up. Yeah, something like that. So we're very encouraged by that, brothers. And uh, for our courage to be a light in a dark state that needs the gospel, um, that's really what we're about in California. We want to see more churches planted. We want to see more men raised up for ministry. We want to see uh, the Lord exalted in our state. But uh, here in the state capital, we're right in the heart of the city. We have many around us who have no uh, interest in us being around, but we want to bring the gospel to them, love them for the sake of Christ, and may God be pleased to save some and, and bring them into his kingdom. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, we, we have many opportunities of witness and evangelism here, even our, by we, I mean, you know, our members. Uh, Sacramento is a significant place for even recent refugees. We have a lot coming from Afghanistan. Uh, We have several fleeing the disaster in Ukraine that are arriving here, and we have Ukrainian uh, uh, members of our own church. And so there's just a a myriad of opportunities in our state um, and in our city to witness to the gospel. We wonderfully have so many members that are engaged Uh, actively in many of these things. Uh, It's a privilege to shepherd them and to encourage them in this. And I I would just add just prayer for wisdom with growing opportunities. Um, There is some, you know, turbulence in the waters of our current, you know, communion and tradition, for lack of a better word. But really, I think there's blue skies ahead. I'm so encouraged by the brothers who want to get trained for ministry. I'm encouraged by the opportunities there are for partnership with other churches here in California um, and the gospel opportunity here. Um, I think just praying for God to continue to bear fruit from uh, the means that he's given us in his word and prayer. Um, And I'm by and large optimistic about what's before us. There are many challenges for sure, um, but it's always been that way, right? The apostle Paul said there's a wide open door and many adversaries. And so we, that's, that's just situation normal. And so I think uh, just prayer for the Lord to continue to, um, give us discernment and wisdom, and that would be would be great. Absolutely, fantastic. Well, brothers, thank you so much for joining us and having this discussion. It's been a blessing having you on um, and talking through these important issues. So, thank you very much. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, you're thanks, welcome. brothers. You're welcome. And with that, everyone, um, take care. Thank you for joining us, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Thank you.